The book of Hebrews, I hope you're enjoying it, I'm enjoying it. Uh, the book of Hebrews, we, we've mentioned this, is, is written to a group of first century Jewish Christians who are facing hardship and persecution. And as a result, they're really struggling uh, with fear, they're struggling with weariness, they're struggling with discouragement to a degree that some of them are really wrestling with the temptation uh, to kind of fall back, uh, to compromise their faith, or even to completely turn away from it and kind of return to Judaism. Uh, and the question that this book addresses is, is essentially this, why is this life so hard? If God loves us so much, why is life so hard? And the answer that we get each and every week as we walk through this book is that our fear and our discouragement, uh, they can be dealt with and even overcome by looking to Jesus, by looking to Jesus. Again and again throughout the, the book of Hebrews, we're directed in various ways. Look at Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, or, or there's some reference to, to seeing Jesus. This week, the author tells us, if you really want to deal with fear and discouragement in your life, you need to see Jesus is king, he's captain, and he's brother. That's what we're going to see in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and wherever you're at, join with me standing together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your presence and your love and, and the gift of your word. We pray that you speak to us today. Your spirit would enable us to hear, to see Jesus as he is, and to be moved by his grace to live for him and join him in his ministry of redemption and reconciliation and restoration in every way possible, for your glory and for our joy, we pray. And all God's people, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, Jesus is the king who enters humanity with us. He, he's the captain who, who faces death for us, and he's the brother who is proud of us. 
That's what the author of Hebrews tells us here in this passage. First, Jesus is the king who enters humanity with us. Let's remember what's, what's come right before this passage and kind of put things in context. And, and really, uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 are, are sort of parenthetical uh, to what's taken place so far in this, this book of Hebrews. Uh, verse 5, if you really read it in, its, in the context here and you pay attention, it's picking up right at the end of the thought that was given to us throughout chapter 1. It really picks up right at the end of chapter 1 and kind of jumps in here in verse 5 with just the parenthetical thought of verses 1 through 4. You see that clear connection with the mentioning of angels again. So let me remind you and let us remember together what what we were being told in chapter 1. Chapter 1 just immediately bursts forth in praise of Christ's divinity. He, he is so high. He is so lofty. He is so other, so transcendent. Jesus is the final word, we're told, the ultimate prophet of God. He's the son of God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the great high priest who made purification for our sins. He's the reigning king seated at the Father's right hand. He's no angel. He's no angel. In fact, he's worshiped and served by angels and he commands angels. He sends them to serve his people. Chapter one is all about Christ's transcendence, how lofty he is, how other he is. But here in chapter two, in these verses we're looking at today, we see another side of the person of Christ. We see his his eminence, his eminence, his presence with us, his humanity. In the end of chapter 1, it's all about how Christ is above the angels. They worship him. He's so much greater than the angels. But here the author fixes our attention on the reality that for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. Why? Because God heard our cries for help. The deep cry that, that wells up from within our souls, that acknowledges the brokenness of our world. That cry that wells up within us that comes from the reality of our own sinfulness. Jesus heard our cries and he came. He, he's not a God who re, remains far off and, and, and uninvolved. He's not a king who sends someone else. He's the king who enters our humanity with us. That's who Jesus is. He's the king who took on flesh, who took on our humanity. And his humanity exposes the condition of our humanity. You see, verses 6 through 8 here in Hebrews 2 include a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And when you go to Psalm 8, 4 through 6, this is how it reads there. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The author of Hebrews applies this quote from Psalm 8 to Christ. In the the context though of Psalm 8, there's there's really a strong connection to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of humanity. And it's really kind of referring to to what humanity is supposed to be, how things are supposed to be for every human being. 
Uh, it, it is pointing us back to Genesis 1, that creation of humanity, the mandate that God gives that first man and woman. We read in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we were meant to be. And Christ's humanity exposes the reality that our humanity is fallen. We are not what we were created to be. And we are not experiencing the reality of, of Genesis 1 or Psalm 8 because of that fact. <clears throat> Our first parents, they were, they were created with, with supreme favor, with, with special privilege, with unique dignity. They were God's treasured creation. They're the only part of God's creation that's created in his own image, crowned with glory and honor for out of everything God made. Only man, only humanity, only male and female, human beings were made in his own image. And as God's most treasured creation, humanity was to rule over the rest of creation. God put the entire created order under his feet. Do you see the echo of Genesis 1 flowing through Psalm 8 here in Hebrews chapter 2? You see, what we're being told here is that Jesus is the ideal man. He's the ideal man. He's man as man should be. His humanity is a picture of what we are supposed to be, but what we are sadly not. Instead, what do we see in our world? We see humanity despising God's favor, abusing privilege, ignoring the inherent dignity, value, and worth of every single human being created in the image of God. Our dominion over creation is limited. In fact, instead of it being under our feet very much, we're under it most of the time. Instead of our, in our, instead of our sinfulness, we, we often seek to get dominion over each other in, instead. We can't have dominion over the creation, so let's try to get power over one another in the ways that we elevate ourselves and discriminate against others. This is why racism can never be reduced to a political issue. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. It's an imago Dei, image of God issue. It's a failure to recognize the inherent dignity, value, and worth of every single human being created in the image of God. Another thing that's not a political issue is being pro-life. It's not political. It's a gospel issue. It's an imago Dei image of God issue because every single human life from the moment of conception has inherent dignity, value, and worth because that life is created in the image of God. We just need to be consistent with our pro-life stance. This is the real problem for a lot of us as Christians 
If, if you're truly pro-life, that means you value every life from every nation, tribe, and tr- tongue. From, from conception to the grave, we value every single life. And while that's true, we have to recognize that deeply rooted in our own nation's history is a demonic devaluing of black and brown lives in particular. Which is why the gospel should compel every Christian, no matter how you vote, to denounce, to speak up against, and to take action to end racism and end white supremacy. To fight against the the systemic racism that is so deeply interwoven into the fabric of our culture that far too many of us are, are blind to even see it. And that may feel like to you, I just went on a a weird tangent. Uh, But I believe it is a paramount application of the truth that we see here. Our humanity is not what it's supposed to be. It's frustrated. It's warped. It's sinful. It is a shadow of what we were made to be. But Jesus is the king who entered our humanity with us. And because we're, because we're incapable of healing and restoring ourselves, he entered into it with us. He, he condescended to take on flesh. He, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of humanity. For a little while, for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels, entering into our humanity with us. He's not a king who stands far off, sends somebody else and doesn't get involved. He's the king who enters our humanity with us. But he's also the captain who faces death for us. After focusing on what we're meant to be here, the author of Hebrews moves on to focus on to what has happened to us and the reality of our situation and what God is doing about that. And the key to understanding our situation is found at the end of verse 8. The last part of verse 8 where it says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. As we've seen, God, God made the world to be under us, but, but it's not happening. It's just simply not happening. When we look at the world, we don't see thriving and flourishing. We don't see the justice. We don't see the peace. We don't see the harmony. We don't see the, the cultivation of resources. We don't see thriving like, like they're supposed to be. What comes before this last little bit of verse 8 was, was looking back at Psalm 8 and, and really even looking back to Genesis 1 and 2 as we've just shown. But, but this, this part of, of verse 8, this is pointing us back to Genesis 3 and the great irony of human history. To quote Tim Keller, the great irony is when human beings decided not to serve God but to serve ourselves, when we decided to be our own lords and masters, ironically, we now can't even master ourselves. We can't even master our own emotions, our own soul, let alone the world. The world is not under our feet. It is not as it is supposed to be. And I don't think I have to belabor the point here uh, for you to, to see that, right? That you, you see the natural disasters. Uh, you're living in the same global pandemic. I'm preaching at a camera, not to people. Uh, like, we, we see this. We see, we see the war. We see the hate. We see the bigotry. We see the poverty. The passage goes on here in verses 14 and 15, uh, part that we'll look at next week, to highlight that above all, our biggest problem is death. And the fear of death. And this is not like a random problem. 
It doesn't feel random like for many of us, this, a virus coming out of nowhere and shutting our lives down feels random. Uh, this is not a random problem. It's a problem that we brought upon ourselves because of our own sinful rebellion against God, because of our rejection of his righteous rule, because of our self-worship, because of our sin, because of your sin, you and I, we now face death. And, and death has us enslaved and, and, and many of us don't even know it. We don't even know it. And here's what I mean. If you think about the reality that, that, that many people in our world want to tell us, right? That there, you know, there is no God. Uh, there's only this world. There's only this life. And then there's death and that's it. There's nothing. If you really embrace that to the full extent of what that means, if, that's, if, that, were, if that were true, that this world, this life is all there is, and then there's death, and then there's nothing, then nothing you do, nothing you do, has any significance at all. It doesn't matter. But even if we think that way, we're unwilling to admit that. We're unwilling to admit it. So we repress it. We repress the fear of death. Uh, that's what we do with all the feelings that we don't want to feel. We, we bury them down deep. Uh, so we don't, we don't want to face it. And do you know what that does to you as a person when you bury that fear of death down deep? It drives you. It drives you. It drives you to hunger for wealth. To, to crave love, to feel the need to achieve and perform and accomplish. Why do you think it is that we walk all over one another? Why, why, why do you think we exploit other human beings? Why is there so little justice and peace in the world? It's because we're desperately, desperately trying to prove to ourselves that we count, that we matter, that we have significance that the things that we do make a difference. But if death is simply the end, they don't. We're in bondage to the fear of death and many of us, we, we don't even know it. That's our situation. So what is God doing about it? Uh, it it's really amazing what the author of Hebrews does here with Psalm 8 in these verses. On the one hand, he's reminding us of, how, 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 of what we're made for, how far we've fallen from that, how much have we've fallen short, and, and the reality of Psalm 8 is just simply not true for us. It, it's just not true. Yet on the other hand, he's reading Psalm 8 through the lens of Jesus. What's the answer to our great problem? Well, we don't see things the way Psalm 8 describes them, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying that the Psalm 8 is not true of us, but it is true of Jesus. And here the light bulb goes on, right? Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. That's the incarnation. He took on flesh. He entered into our humanity with us. He suffered for us. He doesn't now have, have glory and honor despite his suffering, but rather he has glory and honor because of his suffering. His, his, his suffering actually enhances his glory. 
And through his suffering, Jesus faces death. He tastes death for us. And through his suffering, he redeems the world. But how? The answer is found in this wonderful, deep, and majestic verse 10. Look at it with me. It says, for it was fitting. And that is an incredible description. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's a lot that we could unpack here. We're going to focus in on one word. And that word is, is the word that's translated as founder here. Sometimes, depending on your translation of the Bible, it might say author, it might say pioneer. But this word founder is a Greek word that literally means the arch leader. The arch leader. One commentator suggests that the word ought to be transfer, translated as referring to Christ as our champion. As our champion. In other words, Jesus is our, our champion. He's our captain. Champion, of course, refers to, uh, you know, the one who, someone who kind of engaged in representative combat in this time. The, the champion would fight on behalf of the army, on behalf of others in the battle. He puts himself in between you and the enemy to fight on your behalf. And this verse says that Jesus is our champion. He's our captain who went and faced death for us. Even more, he suffered death for us as our captain. He took our place, dying the death that we deserve for our sinful rebellion. And his death destroyed the power of death because he died and then he rose. And then he rose. Faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't simply offer you some promise of some vague afterlife either. We see his resurrection. His disciples firsthand witnessed his resurrection. To trust Christ, his death and resurrection, is to be set free from the power of death. Christ's resurrection declares the reversal of sin and death. It, it, it declares the restoration and the recreation of this world. It declares a restored, redeemed, and resurrected humanity crowned with glory and honor, living in praise of God and exercising dominion over the new creation that he will restore. When, when you or I, we respond to Jesus, inviting us to trust him and to follow him, in that moment, I'm set free from living in fear of death. I'm not a coward anymore when I trust in him. And I know in that moment that when I trust in him, that the living with and for Christ matters infinitely. It's significant. And it can make an eternal difference. Now, when I say we're not cowards anymore, don't, don't hear me saying that we, we shouldn't take pandemics seriously, uh, that we shouldn't seek to love our neighbors and their fears of death, that we should live foolishly or recklessly and just take unnecessary risk with our lives. Our lives are precious. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you don't realize the degree to which you are enslaved to the fear of death until faith in the resurrection of Jesus comes into your life and be, begins to release you from it. Jesus is the captain that dies for us to set us free from enslavement to sin and death. Don't get tripped up on this word perfect here in verse 10 either. Jesus was, is, has been, always will be 
perfect. He didn't need to be made perfect. That's not actually what's being said in that language here. The word perfect also at times carries with it the meaning of completion. And that's what it is referring to here. Jesus as our captain, dying for us, rising for us, completed all the work required for our salvation from, and our rescue from sin and death. We, we don't add to that work. We don't need to add to that work. We, we simply receive it. And we receive it by receiving him, by embracing him in relationship. He's our king and our captain, but that's not all. He's also the brother who is proud of us. Look at verses 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The significance of this gets lost on us a little bit because of our culture. Uh, when, when you and I were, were putting together a resume, if you're looking for a job, you're putting together a resume. A lot of you graduates, you've probably been working on a resume, and if not, you need to. Uh, working on a resume, right? What do we do on a resume? Well, we start listing off. I went to this school, and I got this degree, right? I, I've worked at this place. I've done this. I've acquired these skills. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've made of myself. This is what we do with a resume. But in the culture that the author of Hebrews is writing, the people had a, a much better understanding of really the importance and significance of family and how family shapes who you are. Really, and the reality that really much of who you are is because of the family that you are a part of, for good or for ill. That is a reality. That's still true for us. We just don't tend to acknowledge it as much. You know, so when we're putting ourselves out there, we're talking about all the things we've done, all the things we've accomplished. But in this culture, a genealogy functioned much like a resume. So it wasn't uncommon for a person to put together their genealogy, uh, much like many of us put together our resumes. And what do we do? Well, the bad experiences, the bad references, we, we leave off. We, we don't include them. We, we kind of make it as good. We make ourselves look as good as we possibly can. And so in this culture, you would have people sort of, you know, they just leave off the family members that they were ashamed of. You highlight, you put on top of your genealogy, the family members that you're most proud of, who will get you the most street cred, right? But you would never include the scandals in your family or the people that you weren't proud of in your family line. And with that in mind, think of how astounding it is and in Matthew's gospel, the very first book of the New Testament, the very first chapter of the New Testament, we have the genealogy of Jesus, right? Matthew's gospel, a book written to people to recommend right, Jesus to the world as the savior of the world. And in the first chapter, you have the genealogy of Jesus, the resume of Jesus. And, and look who's there in his resume right away. You, you'll notice five women's names stand out. And in this culture, you would never put a woman's name in your genealogy because women in this culture had a low status. And, and you're trying to promote yourself. You're not going to include them. But women are in the genealogy of Jesus. But, but look at, take a closer look at the women who are there and their stories. And you have Tamar, who's essentially an incest survivor. You have Rahab, who is a prostitute. You have 
A woman mentioned by the name, the title, the wife of Uriah, which is a clear indicator, Bathsheba, of her story. She's an adulteress. And then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, unwed, single mother. By moral standards, these are people we we should be ashamed of, people you would leave out. But Jesus proudly gives them a place of honor in his genealogy in the genealogy of the king of the universe. Now, do you, do you understand what that means for you and me? When he says he's not ashamed. Not ashamed of you. Not ashamed to call you brother. It means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, you can be part of his family. Anyone. You can be someone that he's proud to call his brother. Someone he's proud to call his sister. You can be someone he sings over. He rejoices in. Someone he's proud of. It doesn't matter what you might be hiding from your own resume because you're ashamed of it. It doesn't matter what your family says about you, what they think about you, what your friends say, what the world says. It doesn't matter. You're not ruled by what they say anymore if you're in Christ. It only matters what Jesus says. And he tells you that you have a brother who is proud of you. He's the king who enters our humanity. He's the captain who faces death for us. He's the brother who's proud of us. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to think on and fix our gaze on as we face discouragement and fear This is what will enable you to persevere in the faith. And this is what will empower us to live more and more like Christ here and now as we await the day when he will return and Psalm 8 will become our reality. Jesus has rescued us. He set us free from sin and death, but he has not done so just so we can sit idly by waiting for glory, but so that we might join him in his work of restoration and redemption and reconciliation, to to be ambassadors of that work. We're called to follow our brother Jesus, our captain, our king, in sharing his whole gospel with a broken world desperate for healing. And that means we, like Jesus, we put others ahead of ourselves as we serve, even in the face of suffering. We count it a blessing to suffer to share in his sufferings, as Paul talks about. It means that we seek to meet practical needs. We, we extend mercy, right? We, we love mercy. We do justice. We walk humbly with our God, which means we speak out against injustice, which means we work for gospel reconciliation. We understand that, that Jesus is proud of all of his brothers and sisters, And his brothers and sisters include people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It means that we we understand that the gospel is about God reconciling sinners to himself, but it's also about him reconciling sinners, alienated peoples, together to one another. And one in one new humanity, which is his church, capital C, universal church. We must live fearlessly for the gospel in every sense that we can. Because we have been set free by Jesus. But only in Jesus 
can we grow in this and, and really begin to selflessly, fearlessly, more and more each day live for the sake of the gospel? We have to trust him. We have to follow him. We have to yield ourselves to him. In the first Lord of the Rings movie, tune in nerds, this is our moment. Um, in the first Lord of the Rings movie, there, there's a character named Boromir. Uh, who in many ways, if you think about Boromir, he, he serves as a pretty interesting allegory for the average Christian. Uh, Boromir has a problem. He, he, he was going to be the ruler of this great city, and then he runs into a guy named Aragorn, who's actually the rightful heir to the throne of that city. If Aragorn wasn't there, Boromir would rule. But now since Aragorn is there, he's not going to. He's not going to. And he struggles with that. He, he wrestles with power. You see him wrestle in some ugly ways with his desire for power. And, and, and really, if you think about that, that's how all of us feel about Jesus. When you get near Jesus, you realize Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of your life. And if he's there, you don't get to call the shots for you. And so we struggle. But there's a beautiful moment at the end of that first film where Boromir repents. He's dying. He's on the ground dying. And he looks up at Aragorn. And he, in that moment, sees Aragorn for who he is. And he says, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Whatever fears and discouragement you're facing today, the, the brokenness of our world, the demonic racism and inequality that plagues our nation, the answer is to look to Jesus and to see him and to put your trust in him, to say to him, I will follow you, my brother, my captain, my king. To say that is to be set free from the tyranny of sin and death. To say that is to have hope that this world with all of its evil and injustice will not have the last word. We don't see it yet, but restoration is coming. Let's look to Christ. Let's follow him and let's join him in working toward it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts grieve over the evil in our world. Our hearts weep over the senseless murder of George Floyd, one of your precious image bearers. We pray for his family, that they might find comfort and strength and peace in you. Holy Spirit, expose our hearts. Show each of us where, where racism and tribalism and nationalism have a greater hold than we realize. And Jesus, grant us mercy to repent and arrest in your grace. Empower us to follow you in action, loving mercy, doing justice, and walking humbly with you. May we love one another enough to listen to the pain of our African-American brothers and sisters. May we love one another to speak out against racism and take godly action to work for justice. Jesus, we pray that you usher in the day when you will bring in the fullness of your kingdom and make all the sad, unjust, and evil things come untrue. Until that day, as we face discouragement and fear, as we fail in our own sin, as we feel the pressures of a world that denies you and puts self above all else, we pray that you grant us the grace to see you as you are. As the king who didn't send a messenger 
but sent himself to identify with us and to enter into our mess with us, to see you as a captain, our champion, who died in our place to pay for our sin, and to see you as our brother, who is not ashamed to claim us as your own. Enable us to follow you by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.